First Corinthians chapter four, starting in verse six this morning. If you're using our red Bibles, you can find our passage on page nine hundred and fifty four. First Corinthians chapter four, verse six, as we continue our walk through first Corinthians. And as we walk through 1 Corinthians, I think we can all agree that we are learning that though we are separated by thousands of miles and thousands of years from this church, this small house church in the Greco-Roman city of Corinth, we have more in common than what we most likely realize. And so what we're doing is we're asking God that he would speak as powerfully to us as he did through the Apostle Paul in this ancient city and in this ancient early church of Christ followers. And so let's read what he has to say to us this morning, starting in verse six of chapter four. This is God's word. I have applied all these things to myself and the Paulos for your benefit, brothers and sisters, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up In favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Now what Paul's doing right now, so we're not confused, is he's doing some irony. Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign, that uh, we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us, apostles, as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. The image there is of an arena and a gladiator inside the arena. And that the church in Corinth is sort of sitting in the stands, booing the apostles as they get beat up. Verse 10 says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. And in the Greco-Roman world, working with hands was looked down on. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world. The refuse of all things. Lord, would you speak powerfully to us this morning for your servants are listening. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So before I got married, I lived with three other guys who will remain nameless. And together we managed to live an entire year without one single cleaning day. So at the end of the year, you could, and I'm not exaggerating, probably measure the dust with a ruler. (laughs) It was bad. 
It was really bad. Uh, we had one trash can in the kitchen, and uh, we took like a sick pride in how high we could stack the trash against the wall. And then when it would finally fall, someone, and it wasn't me, would take it out. And we laugh, but looking back, um, I see now that I was seriously harming my chances with Josie because we were engaged. Okay, we were engaged, but engagement can only promise so much. And I look back at those times and I think there was there was like one time, one time, the first and last time that Josie, as my fiance, entered into this apartment one time. And she did still marry me. Praise the Lord. And I cleaned up, I think. But even after 14 years of marriage, I still have a lot to learn in this area. So, for instance, uh, I don't stack trash as high anymore. (laughs) Uh, But I am way too comfortable with a dirty trash can. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Like a dirty trash can. Now, in my mind, a trash can is supposed to be dirty. But Josie is teaching me that you can actually wash a trash can with like soap and water, which is a mind blowing reality to me that you can actually wash a trash can. Like, why do you wash a trash can? So I go outside with the hose and with some Dawn and I'm washing this thing and the bottom of the trash, there's nothing worse than the bottom of a trash can. Amen. I mean, it's terrible. It's wet. It's gross. There's stuff that you don't even know where it's from or when it's from. And right now, if you're, I know some of you are like feeling kind of gross. <laughs> I get that. It's not my fault. Number one, here's why it's not my fault. Uh, our passage this morning that I just read aloud is meant actually to give you that gag reflex. In verse 13, if you look down at the text, you see these two words, scum and refuse. And these are two different ways... In Greek, to say the same thing. Nasty, gross, trash. Paul is trying to get us all to imagine the bottom of a trash can. That's his effort. That's his goal with this text. So don't blame me, right? It's not my fault that you feel queasy. But what is more shocking... To me, and actually what makes me more queasy is that Paul uses this image to describe a true ministry. A cross-shaped, gospel-centered ministry, according to Paul, is like the bottom of a trash can. Paul sees that as a positive image in his thinking. And the problem is, as I read this, I can understand it and comprehend what he's trying to do with my mind. But in my heart, and with a total honesty before you all, I hate this picture of ministry. You know, I want, as a, as a, as a minister, as a pastor, I want ease, I want comfort, I want recognition... I want admiration from all of my peers. When you check out at Whole Foods, if you've ever been, there's like a whole cadre of magazines, like yoga magazines and wellness magazines. Like, I want to look like them. Those shiny, happy faces, 
That's how I want to look. And I want my ministry to be like that. I was called into pastoral ministry 15 years ago. And if I'm totally honest, the image that I had of a pastor had more in common with a rock star or a new age guru than it did what Paul's describing here this morning. I didn't imagine as I imagined myself as a pastor in hospital rooms. I didn't imagine myself in difficult conversations. I didn't imagine myself with social rejection from peers that I admire. I didn't imagine myself with tears and dark nights of the soul. I pictured large, admiring crowds. Book deals, maybe. Conference invitations. And I talk with a lot of pastors, and I know I'm not alone. Uh, But this is true of more than just pastors like me. It's true for all of us. Because if you were saved by Jesus, you were given a ministry from Jesus. We're all ministers. How many of us like this image of ministry? Scum and refuse. I mean, I don't see books on the bestsellers list. Becoming scum and refuse. You know, 12 steps to Christian scum. I don't see unleash a life of ministry that smells like trash. You know, these books don't exist. This was also true. This feeling of, of just sort of rejection about anything having to do with this was true also of Corinth. Because in Corinth, in ancient Corinth, folks would join religious cults. It was just what they did. All of life was religious. And so was, there was no neutral ground. Everybody was finding significance somewhere. And they would join these cults, these what were called mystery cults. And then after they would join it and go through the process of initiation, whatever that would be, they would then boast to their friends and to their family. And they would say things like Paul says in verse 8. If you take a look, they would say things like, I'm rich. I'm royalty. I'm a king. I'm a queen. They would have these boasting terminology about themselves. They would say, I have all I want now. And Paul, therefore, is saying that Christianity in Corinth is in danger of becoming like all the other cults in Corinth. They meet King Jesus and suddenly they're like, I'm rich. I have everything I want. Look at me, I'm a king, I'm a queen. And they go around boasting. And the words that Paul uses is is puffed up. They become puffed up. Or another word he uses here in this text is going beyond. And so they meet Jesus, and then they start going beyond. Higher levels of victorious living. Sound familiar? But for Paul... This is a contradiction of terms. It ignores the cross of Christ. And a ministry shaped by the cross, by definition, can't be puffed up. Amen? It can't be. The cross is the ego deflator. 
Whatever is puffed up in our human hearts will get deflated by the cross. Why? Think about it. Well, the cross tells us, it declares, it proclaims, which is why it's so offensive, of our sin problem. What Francis Bufford calls the human propensity to mess things up. And he uses more colorful language than me. The human propensity to mess things up. Is that not our life? Do we all not bend towards that? That's what the cross proclaims. Is that we have a propensity to mess things up. We don't just do it on accident. No, no, no. We have a propensity. We are bent towards messing things up. That will deflate your ego in a second if you embrace it. What else does the cross proclaim? Well, the cross proclaims our need for rescue. What else will deflate an ego than simply saying, I need rescued? It says our rescuer came also and was crucified on a Roman Empire execution and intimidation device, the cross. And so when people were expecting victory in the Messiah, they did not expect that same Messiah to come and to be executed on the Roman Empire's intimidation device. Which, by the way, was always at eye level. The crosses weren't away on the hills. The crosses were at the intersections. Because when you walked by them, the Roman Empire wanted you scared. Don't you dare cross the Roman Empire. This will happen to you. And the Messiah, the King, comes and He is put on one of those things. And so, like a safety pin to a balloon, Paul is going to pop a puffed up church. And before this sermon is over, you will see that that is the very best news you could hear this morning. How does he do this? Well, he shows us that the cross of Jesus not only saves us, but the cross of Jesus, importantly, shapes us. And in three ways I see in this text. The first way is this. The cross shapes us into beggars. Lifelong beggars. Paul says in verse 17, if you take your eyes down to the text, he says, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Paul is saying everything is gift in the Christian life. Everything that we have is gift. I mean, Paul would say in a different letter to the church in Ephesus, he would say that even your faith in God is a gift. Which is the ultimate ego deflator. Is it not? I mean, just the other day, just a couple days ago, uh, Josie, my wife and I were teaching our boys about faith by using trust falls. Right? So you kind of stiff as a board and you kind of fall backwards. Um, And so we were simply saying, what is faith? What is faith? Faith isn't just believing something, like believing something. It's actually, you know, trusting it. That was our idea. And so we had all the boys sort of do the trust fall. And we noticed that some were more able to do it than others. There's always a little falter, a little step. And we say, no, 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 faith is, is, is that. But the more I pondered that, the more I thought, I'm teaching my kids bad theology. That's no good. Because you can take a pride in your faith. Can't you not? Because some of our boys struggled 
And some of our boys didn't. And so walking away from that exercise, they could have gone away with the false notion that their faith is something they're good at. (laughs) No, faith, biblically defined, is the gift of desperation. In fact, the person who faltered is in a better posture of faith because they know they can't do it on their own. That is what faith is. Faith is the reality that we cannot do it on our own and we simply acknowledge it. It's a bottoming out. Alcoholics Anonymous has this right. When we bottom out, we cry out. And that place of crying out is faith. And Paul is telling us in Ephesians, and he's saying it here, that everything, even faith, is a gift from God. The gift of desperation. Miroslav Volf He writes, faith honors God. It tells the truth about God and our relation to the divine giver and ascribes to God what is due. In contrast, good works offered God dishonors God. How so? They tell a lie about God and our relation to the divine giver. Beggars hold their hands open in a posture of expectant Receptivity. The cross shapes us into beggars. Martin Luther, the reformer, he said his very last breath, all of life. All of life. All of it, from beginning to end, is begging. We have nothing to offer God except our sin and our brokenness. I love this picture of the prodigal son by Rembrandt. And it's hard to see because it's so dark, but if you were to take a look at the bottom, you see the prodigal son returning. And if you were to look even closer, you'd see his foot. He has one shoe on and one shoe off. And the reason I love this picture is because we come to God in that posture and we don't even have our shoes on. We lost them somewhere. All of life is gift. And so the cross shapes us into beggars. It also shapes us into sojourners. Sojourners. A sojourner is a traveler. A sojourner is someone who's walking towards something that has not yet been met. But they do so with confidence and trust that this right now is not the end of the story. Sojourners understand that they're in a story that's going somewhere. They're not content with simply the chapter they're in, but they know that the chapters build up and they lead to a climax. Sojourners live in the tension of the already and the not yet, which we'll talk about. If you look at verse 8 through 10, Paul is using this word over and over again. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. And he goes on, and Paul is using irony in these verses, pointing out how the Christians in Corinth thought they had already finished their journey. Already you have gone through the final chapter. Already you have finished your journey, your sojourn. Something is wrong here because Paul is using irony. He's saying, look at us, your pastors. You know, you ran off ahead of us because that's not our experience. And he goes on to list all of the ways in which they're having a hard time. 
Remember, Paul says that we're living in this already, not yet, reality. And so if you were, uh, if your mind was informed by the scriptures, you would know what the present age means. The present age is, is basically the world as we know it, broken and full of injustice and disappointment. It's when God feels absent. And in the biblical story, there was this phrase, the age to come. And the age to come was thought of the kingdom come, the kingdom of God in its fullness. When all injustice is healed, when all brokenness and sickness is healed, when all is made right again, and when we are satisfied in the presence of the king with how he tied it all up. That is the age to come. And their expectation was that when the Messiah came, Jesus, that he would bring that in its fullness. And what Jesus does is he comes and he says, no, no, it's like a mustard seed. It's going to be planted, but it's going to have to grow for a while. And then, and then I'm going to come back and it'll be fully realized. And so what he does is he brings in the age to come. But he brings in the age to come with an overlap. And we are living in that overlap, that tension between the already which is the age to come, and the not yet, which is the present age. The already not yet. So Paul is saying, already you have become kings. He's not denying that Christians will, when Jesus returns, rule with with Jesus, which he says just a few verses earlier. He's simply saying, you're forgetting the not yet. The tension. The brokenness. And he says, when you ignore the not yet You get too confident, too boastful, too puffed up. Remember, Corinth was a Roman colony. And in the Roman Empire, they had two powerful symbols. Crosses and arches. Crosses were for losers. Arches, what were they for? They're for winners. Returning armies would come and walk through these triumphal arches. After they had won a battle. We have our own archway right here. And what this archway would do as they walked through this archway is they would understand this archway to, to, to purify the armies for what they had to do to win. You know, win at, win at all costs. And so the archway would purify them, but it would also glorify them. And it would notify the whole city, the whole empire really, that we won. This is a triumphal arch. And you know who was at the very back of that line as they walked through this archway? The losers. The losing generals and the losing armies. And what would happen after the parade? And we've been to some of these parades. Haven't we? I mean, we have a whole street called Champion Way. <laughs> we have parades when we win, do we not? Or, I, you know, I'm a Cubs fan. In Chicago, there was a triumphal sort of march that happened after Chicago won their first World Series. We, we all impulsively do this. We love winning. 
The only difference between the Cubs celebrating their World Series championship and the Roman general celebrating his victory is that the losers were dragged behind and they were crucified. Or taken to the Colosseum. Or sold into slavery. Do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying of the two symbols in the Roman Empire, the way of Jesus is not the arch. The way of Jesus is the cross. The losing one. Oh, the crown is eventually ours. Jesus is reigning. But until the day he returns, we bear a cross. This means, Christians, we win by stepping down. By being last in line. And we lose when we demand respect. Christians lose when we are offended easily. I read this recently and it is true. Christian mission has always thrived by surging in the margins and under the radar. When we somehow get into positions of power, the wheels always come off. I mean, the New Testament is written to a minority marginalized group. And nowhere does it tell us to fight our way into power. No, no, no. It tells us instead we are to experience the power of God that rests powerfully on the weak and the marginalized. We should be known, therefore, for our patience, our ability to wait for Jesus to make things right. We're sojourners. Question, does being a sojourner, does being a patient waiter for Jesus to fix things, does that make us passive Sort of like, just sort of bunker up and sort of wait for him to return. No. The same cross that teaches us to be patient and to lean into the tension of the already and the not yet, that same cross teaches us and shapes us into givers. Radical mission of giving. In verses 11 through 13, we read this. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst, and we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we clap back. Just kidding. That's not what it says. It says we entreat. We have become and still are until Jesus returns like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. One historian points out that there were basically in Paul's day three responses to to insults and to attacks. I think this is super helpful. The three basic ways to respond to someone disrespecting you, attacking you, criticizing you. The first is the cynic option. 
the cynic option. This is when you bark back. Uh, We get the word cynic from the Greek word for dog. So I said bark back on purpose. Uh, The very first cynic, his name was Diogenes. The very first cynic, his nickname was Diogenes the dog. And the Greek word for dog is how we get the word cynic. And so a cynic, what they would do is they got really good at insulting other people back. You insult me? Like that store, like that restaurant, Ed the Bevix, they're like really good at insulting you. That's a cynic approach to being insulted. You say this, I say this back. Another approach that was popular in Paul's day was the stoic option. This is when you rise above the insult. It's the sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me approach. And in an age of like Twitter mobs and Twitter criticisms, I'm noticing that stoicism is making a comeback. There are you go on Amazon, type in stoicism and you will find self-help books published in the past year advocating a stoic way of life. It's, it's appealing. It's like, I'm bigger than this. I'm better than this. Your criticism, this hardship, whatever comes my way, I am stronger. I am stronger. You know what I'm saying? This is the, this is the stoic approach. And then there was a third approach in Paul's day, and it was the martyrdom approach. The martyrdom approach is when you sort of exalt the role of being criticized. You almost invite it. You almost welcome it. You do things so that you get criticized because it means you then are a martyr. We talk about the martyr complex. This is another option. Go to Twitter, if you're not already on Twitter, (laughs) and you will see Christians doing all three with just like brilliance. We are so, so, so good at barking back. We are so very good at sort of rising above. And man, do we love playing the martyr. Paul is advocating for a fourth option here. He says, we bless. We bless. Jesus said, we don't just rise above our enemy. We love our enemy. Man. Paul says we endure and we entreat. There's something supernatural going on here. Do you see it? The first three options are way too human. This option right here is just way too supernatural. I watched Paddington Bear 2 with my boys a couple weeks ago on family movie night. Have you seen this movie? It'll make you emotional. I'm just warning you. It is a really good movie. I haven't seen Paddington Bear 1, but I want to now. I was blown away because this movie, as I'm watching it on this Friday night, started preaching the gospel to me. Like, what is going on? This is what David Zoll calls pagan priests, you know, when things unexpectedly start preaching to you. Because Paddington Bear was falsely imprisoned by trying to bless his mother. Spoiler alert. And, and when he is in jail, further spoiler alert, plug your ears, he blesses everybody he comes in contact with, even his enemy, the chef. 
And everywhere he goes, it's a beautiful, beautiful picture of what Paul is describing here. Persecuted, we bless. Persecuted, we entreat. Persecuted, we endure. We give. How is it possible? Well, Paddington Bear doesn't give us the answer. In fact, it hints at the answer. Because after all, Paddington Bear bear is not a human. It's like this alien figure has to come into the world of brokenness and show us the way. Someone untouched by the human condition has to come into our broken world and show us the way. As if it's out of reach for mere humans, and it is. All we have at our disposal is the cynic way, the stoic way, and the martyr way. But Paul tells us how this fourth option is possible, and it's in verse 13. The words Paul uses when used to describe the, uh, the scum and the refuse, these same words were used to describe the leftover meat from a sacrifice that was pitched away because it was undesirable. It was scraped off and thrown away like trash. In fact, the site was always out of the city. Jesus, right? The king of the universe was sacrificed in our place and then scraped off and thrown away like refuse, like trash. I mean, there's one person who saw past it and buried him. In fact, to this day, the site of his crucifixion, some think is a bus stop outside of the city of Jerusalem. And why was Jesus thrown away like trash? To bless his enemies. You and me. cross was the greatest insult to Jesus and yet it was also the greatest source of blessing to those insulting him we are able to love our enemies to even bless our enemies because we are loved enemies can I say that again we are able to love our enemies because we are loved enemies we are able to bless our enemies, because we are blessed enemies. The cross saves us, but it also shapes us. Amen. We become beggars, sojourners, and givers. Lord, we are grateful that you have called us into a place of freedom. We no longer have to hold grudges against people, but we can release that to you and give. Lord, the burden of sort of criticizing back, fighting back, or rising above, that sort of burden, we can just sort of give now to you, and we can see that we are simply at the foot of the cross, saved by Jesus, and now our lives are shaped just like that cross, where we can love our enemies the same. 
And Lord, I pray that as we enter into our ministry, whatever that is, we all have one. That we would find our confidence in your smile, Jesus. The only smile that matters. And if we're in a room of frowns or scowls, our cup is full by you, Lord. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.